Well, we are going to continue this morning our series in Mark. So if you want to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. You can also see that uh, printed inside your bulletin. This year at the Golden Globe Award, some of you may have seen Jim Carrey. Uh, he was announcing the nominee for our nominees for Best Comedy Motion Picture. Uh, and this is what he said. I'm a two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just the guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. Because then, I would be enough. It would finally be true and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. Uh, describing the scene, one writer said that the actors dressed to perfection in designer gowns and tuxedos doubled over in laughter as Jim Carrey did this bit or speech. But as the camera panned their faces, it seemed that his words rang truer than any of Hollywood or we are comfortable admitting. If a golden globe or three will not satisfy us, what will? If a golden globe or one or two or three won't satisfy us, then what will? It's a great question, isn't it? What, what would really satisfy me? What would really satisfy you? What's the, the golden globe in your life? But if I just had that or another one of those, everything would be okay. I think it probably looks different for us at different stages of life. When we're four or five or six, our Golden Globe is a new toy. Uh, when we're 16, it's a new car. When we get a little bit older, we want to be married. Then we want to have children. Then we want those children to quit crying through the night so we can get some sleep. As we move on to midlife, we want a faster car for our midlife crisis. Uh, then we begin to, to think, well, I just need a little more money in my 401k so I'll be secure. And then we just want our health to hold on a little bit longer. But what if you, and this is not life stage dependent, but what if you were paralyzed? What if that's how you approached every day, that every morning you woke up and nothing had changed and you were paralyzed, unable to walk, your friends had to push you around in a wheelchair or carry you around on a mat? What would be your greatest need then? What would be the thing that you wanted more than anything else? You'd want to walk, right? You would think, that is my greatest need. If I could just walk, then everything would be okay. Well, according to the text this morning, that's not true. The most important thing for a paralyzed person is not to be able to walk. Well, what is it then? Uh, let's read, and, and we're going to talk about that. So, uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's Word. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word to them, and they came near, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, this is your word and given it to us. Uh, we pray that you would teach us through it. Uh, we pray that you would amaze us by it. Uh, we pray that you would help us to see that you are a God who forgives sins. And that is what we need more than anything. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to just kind of, first of all, look at the claim that Jesus is making in this text. And then we're going to flesh out some implications of this claim that Jesus makes. So what's the, what's the claim? Uh, Jesus is preaching. This is probably at Peter's house. It's so crowded that you can't get in the house. There's not even really room at the door to get anywhere close to Jesus. Uh, there are four men who show up bringing their paralyzed friend, but they want to bring him to Jesus, but they can't get close to him. Uh, and so they either take the stairs or a ladder to the roof. They climb up to the roof of the house. Uh, this would be a, a house with a mud thatch roof, and they dig a hole in the roof. Now you can imagine kind of if someone came and dug a hole, cut a hole in the ceiling here of the element, we probably wouldn't get to meet here anymore. Um, but if, if somebody repelled in and, and, and if they brought this paralyzed person into our midst, that's what happens here uh, in this scene. Everybody looks up and their friends are lowering their friend on his mat, on his bed, down into the midst of the crowd there before Jesus. Uh, Jesus sees their faith, the text says, and he looks at the man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this really wasn't what anybody is expecting or looking for probably at this moment. The scribes, uh, remember, who are the external, or excuse me, who are the, the experts in the law of God, they kind of have this internal freak out at this moment. Uh, and, and they basically say, this is blasphemy. This man is, is claiming to be God. He's doing something that only God can do because only God can forgive sins. Uh, Psalm 103 Verse 3, God is the one who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Uh, Psalm 51.4, which we used this morning, David confessing his sin. There's a line in there where David says to God against you and you only have I sinned. And David is not saying, well, it didn't matter what I did to them. But he's saying, ultimately, my sin is committed against God. He is a God whose standard I've broken, whose law I have broken broken and so the scribes are actually right if jesus jesus isn't god if he's just a man he doesn't have any right to forgive sins he's claiming for himself a power reserved for god and for god alone uh, jesus knows what they are thinking in their hearts and he says why do you question which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. Now, it's an interesting statement. Uh, which is easier? 
your sins are forgiven, arise, get up and walk. Now, on the one hand, Jesus may be saying, you think it's easy just to say your sins are forgiven. You think anybody can say that. You think it would be much harder for me to actually heal this person. You want me to show you that I have this authority. Okay, rise, get up and walk. And so Jesus could be showing them, hey, I am the God of Psalm 103 who forgives all your sin and heals all your diseases. And I think that's part of what he's doing. But if you think about it a minute, there may be a bit of a double meaning to this question. Jesus really wants us to to think about that question, which, which one is easier? Which one really is easier? Healing him? Or bringing about forgiveness. Which, which one of those is easier? Healing him or bringing about forgiveness? In the long run, bringing about forgiveness is actually going to be a much harder thing. Because in order for this man's sins to be forgiven, Jesus is going to have to die. There's a cost involved with forgiveness. There's a debt that has to be paid. His sins don't just vanish in the thin air. Somebody has to pay that debt. And so Jesus is going to be the one to do that. Jesus is going to do the thing that's much harder in reality. He's come to die for his sins. Verse 10 and 11. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So what's the claim that Jesus is making? Jesus is saying, I have authority to forgive sins. You say, well, wait, nobody has that authority but God alone. Jesus says that you're catching on. You're catching on. You're starting to get it. I have the authority to forgive sins. I'm claiming the authority that only God has. That's the claim that Jesus makes in this text. All right? So what? Right? So, so, so what? What do we do with that? Uh, let, me, let me name a few implications of this. One is that you can't just look at Jesus and shrug your shoulders and say, hey, he's a good guy and he said some helpful things, um, but, you know, that, that, that's all. Listen, he's claiming to be God in the flesh. What are you going to do with that? Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote, One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this really is so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. 
in the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Yet, and this is the strange, significant thing, even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him, not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. Jesus is saying he is the very Son of God with the authority to forgive sins. And so the question is, what, what are you going to do with that? You can't just say he was a good guy. If he was just a good guy, he was, he was crazy. What are you going to do with Jesus' claim to have this authority? Uh, secondly, in claiming to forgive sins, notice, and, and C.S. Lewis brings this out, he's assuming and saying that these sins have actually been committed against him. And so Jesus is saying, look, God has rules. He has a law. He has said there's an alt to how you and I ought to live and how you and I ought to behave. And so when we sin, we're actually violating that divine law. We're actually violating that divine standard. Now, when I sin, I'm not just making things hard on myself. All right? I'm, I'm not just hurting other people. My sins, and there are plenty of them, are ultimately a violation of a divine standard. They're ultimately a violation of God's law. How does God feel about that, this violation of his law? Does he just shrug? Uh, Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and sin spread to all men. Which is kind of what we were talking about in the catechism question this morning. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And so sin brings death, sin brings disintegration. And, and this is kind of hard, but, but look at yourself aging uh, if you're still like under 25 look at your parents aging look at your grandparents aging look at the paralyzed man look at poverty and disease and war and afflictions and racism and addiction sin brings death in a myriad of forms into the world and God is kind and hasn't immediately just kind of given us uh, uh, what we all deserve. He sends rain, the scripture says, on the just and the unjust. We enjoy beautiful days still and great joys in this life. But make no mistake, the scripture says sin brings death. Sin brings death into the world and into our lives. Uh, and there's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correspondence like, I'm suffering this because I did that sin, but sin, I, I, suffering and death exist in general because of sin. This deterioration in the world exists because of sin. And if left unchecked, if left unchecked, you and I get to experience death and destruction and deterioration forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's, I think, part of what hell is. Uh, Jesus doesn't view sin as just this made-up human construct. 
It's real and it has real world consequences. And so the question then is, what, what do we do with that? Here's this man who says he has the authority of God to forgive sins. But he's also saying to us, look, sin is real. So don't just pass off what I'm saying as insignificant or only for religious people. This has consequences for everybody. Which brings us to our, the third implication of this. All this means that I have a deeper problem than my circumstances. I have a deeper problem than my circumstances, deeper than my suffering. Jesus sees the man that's paralyzed, but he chooses to deal with something else first. He chooses to deal with his sin because sin was the real problem. Sin was the most important thing. The, the fact that he's paralyzed is evidence that it's not unimportant. And Jesus has mercy on him and heals him. It's not unimportant, but it's evidence that we live in a world wrecked by sin. And what really needs to be addressed in our hearts and our lives is that. It's the sin that separates us from God and brings disintegration. Uh, I, I imagine that you had a, a car that had a battery that just kept dying over and over and over again. And you jumped it off. And then a few days later, it died again. And you just did this as many times as you could. Uh, and then finally, you, you go and you buy a new battery. And you put that battery in. And it does the same thing over and over and over again. But you never took the time to get a mechanic to find the fault in the electrical system that was causing the dead battery in the first place. There was a, there was a deeper problem than what the obvious problem was. There was a deeper problem that needed to be dealt with. Jesus is saying... The paralysis is a problem. And, and he's going to do something about that. It is a problem. He's not denying that. But he's saying, we need to go deeper than that. There's something more fundamentally wrong with you. He's saying to the, to the paralyzed man, and he's saying to, to me and to you as well, that the main problem is not uh, the lack of a significant other in your life. The, the, the main problem is not uh, your health, as, as difficult as it may be. The main problem is not your lack of funds and your 401k. It's that you and I have tried to live life without reference to God. We've tried to say, hey, I got this and I can do this without any input from God. That's the real problem. Uh, here's how this works. Um, we're, we're broken because of sin. So what do we do? All right, uh, uh, imagine you've got a guitar that's broken. But instead of actually doing whatever needs to be done to fix it, you just put some tape on it. All right? My mom said that when I was a kid, I thought you could fix anything with tape. Well, we got a flat tire. We'll just put some tape on it. Like it, Tape will take care of anything. And so we tape up our broken guitar. That's what we do in our lives as well. We think, if I could just kind of put some tape on this part of my life, if I could just get this to go well then everything would be okay. And Jesus, is, he's saying to the paralyzed man, you think if I just take this up, you think if I just heal you, then, then you're going to be happy from now on. But I can, I can make you able to walk, and within two or three months, you're going to be unhappy again for another reason, because we haven't dealt with the real issue in your heart. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a wall in our house. If you go, walk into our kitchen, um, and, and turn to the right, you, you wouldn't notice that anything is wrong with this wall, but, but we discovered after we moved in that our house was built in the 60s and it had one of these 
speaker systems where you can talk in the kitchen to the guy in the basement and who knows how much those things cost to put in then. Well, they decided they left the one in the basement. They took the one out of the wall in the kitchen and it's about that big. And instead of fixing that hole in the wall, they just put wallpaper over it. And then they painted it. And so if you're kind of doing this on the wall, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. There's nothing behind the wall there. And so you, you, they didn't fix the hole. And so you can never hang anything on the wall right there. If you lean up against it too hard, you're going to go crashing through this hole in the wall. You and I have this, this hole in our hearts. Augustine said it's this God-shaped hole. It's there because of sin. We, we don't have a relationship with the one we're made to have a relationship with. But instead of addressing the hole, instead of trying to, to, to deal with a real problem, we're constantly laying wallpaper over that hole. We're just putting things over it so that we can forget about it and just get on with our lives and hopefully make it a little better. It's, it's, it's different things for all of us. It's our grades. It's our achievements. It's, it's devoting our lives to making a difference sometimes. We just, we just throw ourselves into that. We throw ourselves in the careers. We throw ourselves in our children. And it's just layer after layer of wallpaper over the hole. And then we get to something in life that's heavy. And we try to hang something on that wallpaper and it rips. When the reality of sin and death hits our lives, that wallpaper won't hold up any longer. And this gaping hole in our lives is exposed. It's exposed. This is one reason why, actually, if you think about it, being paralyzed is probably one of the best things that ever happened to this man. Because his suffering exposed this hole, and it finally got him in front of Jesus. And Jesus dealt with not only the external, but he dealt with his heart as well. And so, and this isn't about suffering, but suffering is, is, uh, is an opportunity for us to actually do business with God because the things we've wallpapered over are finally ripped away and exposed and that hole is there and it's an opportunity for us to do business with God. We have to get down, Jesus says, below all the surfacey stuff and deal with the underlying issue. We have to deal with the deeper issue and the deeper issue is our sin and our brokenness, our broken relationship with God. The story is told of a um, professor who was doing some research in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and he went to AA meetings all over the country. And he came into one of these meetings and he was listening to this young, well-dressed man talk about his problems. And the young man was saying basically that all his mistakes were because of other people. And he was kind of doing the blame game. This guy did this and this guy did this and he betrayed me and he wronged me and I'm going to avenge myself and make everything right. And the professor said it was obvious that the young man was trapped in this need to justify himself. So this is not, this is not, my situation is not really my fault. And he said it was obvious that things were not going to get better until he owned that it was his fault, that there was a problem there. And he said while the young man was speaking, there was this man in dreadlocks sitting next to him. And he leaned over to the professor and he said, I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem. And the professor wrote, as the speaker bombarded us with phrases like, got to take control of my life, and I've got to really believe in myself, 
The man beside me took refuge in the Calvinist doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. Pride is the enemy of hope. What he meant by his joke about self-esteem was that he had learned no one can save himself by his own efforts. He thought the speaker was still lost, lost in himself without knowing it. See, the, the, the real thing that needs to be addressed is my sin. It's my relationship with God. And until that's addressed, we're just lost in ourselves, trying to paper over that hole in our hearts, that hole in our lives. Well, fourth implication, and the best one really, is Jesus forgives sin. Jesus forgives sin. My real problem is my sin, and I've got to see it, but Jesus forgives sin. God doesn't just close up shop and say, well, the heck with those guys. He comes and he pursues broken sinners. He comes and he makes people whole. And what that means is you don't have to deny your sin. You don't have to try to cover it up. You don't have to make up for it in some way through your efforts in this life. You don't have to atone for it yourself. You don't have to punish yourself in some way because of what you've done. The good news is that Jesus came to bring about forgiveness of sin. That Jesus came to do what we really can't do no matter how hard we try. And he says to us, if, if you'll simply come to me in faith, like the paralyzed man and his friends, if you'll simply come to me, I will forgive your sins as well. How could he do that? How could he do that? Because Jesus, even at this moment in Mark, is on his way to the cross where he's going to take my place, receive what I should have received, get what I deserved, so that I could walk free, so that I could be forgiven. Uh, several years ago, there was a um, secular humanist author who was approaching death, and she was being interviewed, and she said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. I have nobody to forgive me. We have a God who forgives. That's, that's the good news that we have. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. And it can become so trite and everyday to us. But that's what we have to offer to the world. Uh, you know, not a bunch of a theological system or rules or a, a moral system or a tight community. We have the opportunity to offer forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, that's the good news that the church has to offer. Uh, some of you may have, have seen this past week, uh, Monty Williams is an assistant basketball coach for the Oklahoma City Thunder uh, in, in the NBA, uh, and his wife was killed by someone who was driving 90 miles an hour in a 40 mile per hour uh, zone. And you really owe it to yourself to, to watch his eulogy at at her funeral uh, because you could really see in the words he said his belief, his trust in God's sovereignty, and also his willingness to extend forgiveness. And that was probably the most amazing thing was his willingness to extend forgiveness and to say to the people gathered there, we don't hold this against that family. They didn't get up in the morning intending to do this. And we need to pray for them too. I know y'all are praying for me and we need, to, we need to pray for them too. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? That comes from somebody who, yeah, trusts God's sovereignty, but somebody who also 
has known God's forgiveness. He's heard Jesus say to him, your sins have been forgiven. And so now he's able to turn and say to others, I'm, I'm willing to forgive you just as I have been forgiven. Number five, Jesus forgives sin. Jesus forgives sin. He goes underneath the surface and he gets at our real need. But then he keeps going back there. And he keeps going underneath there. And that's, that's kind of how sanctification works. So that more and more we rest in him and trust in him and turn away from our false saviors and turn to him daily. Uh, he shows up and he shows us, hey, you've been using this to wallpaper over the hole in your heart. Let me rip that off. And you've been using this. Now let's work on pulling that off as well, layer by layer by layer. And he pulls them back and he teaches us to find our happiness and our joy and our significance in him and not in all the golden globes we're trying to collect <coughs> for ourselves. Uh, in the book, The, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, many of you uh, Narnia fans know the story. There's a boy named Eustace and he's this selfish, pain-in-the-rear-end kind of guy. Nobody gets along with him. And at one point, he, in the book, he stumbles onto this treasure, and he says, I'm rich. And he's, he's going through all this gold, and he's thinking about all the ways he's going to pay back everybody who's ever done anything wrong to him. And he falls asleep on this pile of treasure, thinking these greedy, dragonous thoughts, because this is actually a dragon's treasure. And he falls asleep, and when he wakes up, he himself has turned into a dragon. And he can't do anything about it. He's stuck as a dragon, miserable, depressed. What's he going to do? Well, Aslan, the lion, who's the Christ figure, shows up. And he tells Eustace that he needs to undress and he needs to get in the water. And undressing means taking off the skin. And so Eustace tries peeling these layers away and trying to claw this skin off. But under each layer, there's another layer. And finally, Aslan looks at him and says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And here's what Eustace says in the book. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I turned into a boy again. Uh, commenting on this passage, um, before us and on this story Tim Keller writes for many of us it's hard to read that passage without weeping because like the paralyzed man and like Eustace we thought if we just got a little bit of help we could save ourselves but we learned that Jesus wanted to take us deeper we had to let him use his claws and go all the way to our heart and reconfigure the main thing that our heart wanted you see it wasn't our deepest wish itself that was the problem just as it wasn't wrong for the paralytic to want to walk or for the celebrity to want to succeed or for Eustace to want to be loved and respected, 
the fact that we thought getting our deepest wish would heal us, would save us, that was a problem. We had to let Jesus be our Savior. We've got this list of what we want, or what this text reveals is what we really need is forgiveness. What we really need is restored relationship with the Father. The Savior we really need is Jesus. Well, let me say one last thing in closing. How did the paralytic get to Jesus? His friends brought him. His friends brought him. They, they all had faith, and I don't know who instigated it, but they all had the faith to bring him to Jesus. Are you doing that with your friends? Have you experienced this forgiveness of God that, that makes you want to let others know that they can find this forgiveness as well? <clears throat> Do you see that underneath everything that's broken in the people around you's life, underneath all of that, that just like you, they need to hear more than anything else, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's the greatest need of your heart. And that's the greatest need of their heart as well. You want to bring your friends to Jesus. What does that look like? It looks like praying for them. It looks like meeting physical needs. It looks like looking for opportunities to talk to them about the gospel. It looks like bringing them here and saying, that, you know, that's a place where I hear about my sins being forgiven. And they need to hear that too. So I'm going to try to get them there so they can hear the gospel preached, so they can hear the gospel sung, so they can see the gospel demonstrated. Because they think they need that, and I'm the same way. But what they really need is Jesus. Do you know him? If you do, will you bring your friends so they can meet him as well? Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we confess that there are a lot of things we want, and there are a lot of things we use to try to paper over that hole in our lives. Uh, would you help us to see that our real need is, is Jesus, our real need is a Savior, our real need is one who restores a relationship with you, our Father. Uh, and Father, we know that, that all that paper doesn't get peeled off the wall all at once, uh, that we continue to, to, to hide and seek after the wrong things. So we thank you for your patient work in our lives. Uh, even though it's painful sometimes, we thank you that you're at work for our good, changing us and loving us uh, and continually restoring our relationship with you. Would you help us uh, in all of this to trust you, to trust what you're doing in our lives? And would you make us a people and individuals and a church uh, who want the people around us not, just to, not so much to straighten up and fly right and be like us, but he wants the people around us to hear these words of Jesus. My son, your sins are forgiven. Father, would you be at work through us and in us, and would you be at work uh, in our relationships that we might have opportunities to testify to Jesus. We ask in his name, amen.